0: Welcome to the conversation on TYT. Good to have you with us, Michael Shore, with you now. But I'm going to be joined by Jason Stanley, and Jason is the Jacob Urowski. Uh, professor of philosophy at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, which is where he joins us from today. Uh, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. It is the best time possible to speak about uh, what you write about and what you talk about. And I, you know, I, what we're going to get into it. Your book, uh, which it, which we will we will also get into, deals with us versus them, the politics of us and them, and and it's about fascism, which was the third, maybe the fourth, fifth, or sixth rail of what you could talk about or call someone. Talk to me a little bit about fascism, how it's become acceptable. When did that happen? Was there a moment where you could turn to and say, that's when it was okay to call somebody in politics fascists, especially when you're looking at the Trump administration today?
1: So fascism is a cult of the leader that's based on a myth of national regeneration in the face of supposed challenges by leftists, Marxists, minorities, and immigrants. And as soon as you have a government, as soon as you have someone who's running on the basis of saying, I am the only one that can restore the nation in the face of this invasion by immigrants, For someone like me, who's a scholar of propaganda and fascism, and whose parents are survivors of the European Holocaust, that was just an alarm bell. As soon as Donald Trump came down from his elevator, and proclaimed that Mexicans were rapists. That that you know, Mexicans were bringing in Mexican immigrants were rapists, and some were good people. Uh, he ran a campaign on the basis of attacking immigration, on the ta- uh, law and order. Uh, these are classic fascist tropes of the 20th 20th century, and uh, it it was sort of impermissible to talk about this uh, because. America can't be fascist supposedly. But it turns out when you do the research that, that when Donald Trump calls his movement the America First movement, that is in fact hearkening back to the time when the United States was fascist. Was, not was fascist, but had a fascist social and political movement. Had multiple fascist social and political movements, among which were America First, which HBO's plot against America has shown us in detail. Uh, the Philip Roth novel is about that. It's about Charles Lindbergh, the spokesperson for America First, whom we know the Nazis thought of as a potential American Führer. So it was impermissible to talk this way because, you know, uh, but uh, because it's, it's the United States, uh, we can't have fascism here, we have democracy genes, uh, but we have to look at our country like a country that is, uh, belongs in the world. Yes, we've done great things and we've done terrible things. But what happens in other countries can happen to us too. And when you look for a label of the ideology and increasingly the social and political movement that is Trumpism. The one that fits most closely is the label fascism, not because of Hitler. Uh, but because of fascist movements all across the world, in Britain, where the where the whose who's motto the fascist uh, British fascist motto was Britain for the British, and they favored a complete ban on immigration. Sound familiar? Uh, the uh, the immigration policies that Trumpism represents are the ones that Hitler praises in Mein Kampf. Uh, so uh, so call it what it is. Uh, not all fascist social and political movements are the Nazis. Is is um,
0: is American exceptionalism, which I couldn't stop thinking about when you were talking about America first and you were talking about Britain first. Is American exceptionalism that turn of phrase? Is that a code word for is that fascism light? Uh, when when you hear, I mean, this was there were fifty bullet points that the president gave at the RNC uh, that uh, that were going to sort of be the blueprint for the for the uh, for the convention. Among them was the idea of American exceptionalism can you talk about that a little bit and how it relates to your subject?
1: So American exceptionalism fits the fascist mindset because Fascism is always ultranationalism and and nationalist exceptionalism. We have such a hard time seeing Trump as a fascist figure because he's so American. But any American fascist would would be as American as apple pie, which Trump is. Trump is as American as apple pie. American exceptionalism is both a sign of fascism as well as a sign of anti-fascism. Because our American exceptionalism takes the form of regarding ourselves as immune to fascism. So American exceptionalism could be healthy. It could be a it's it's a sort of Rorschach, right? I think it's dangerous, even in its good form, right now, because it blocks us from seeing that we are are susceptible to the ideologies that other that that have befallen other democracies around the world.
0: Right, and it also it requires interpretation as well. I mean, American exceptionalism to one person can be what a great welfare system we have, while to another person that could be one of the things that makes America terrible to that person,
1: correct? Absolutely, this is how propaganda works. It's As Walter Lippmann said, you put a symbol up so that different people can read that symbol in different ways.
2: Yeah,
0: well, fascism, a propaganda, Italian words. I'd rather have, as we talked about before the interview, pizza than those. But <laughs> in, in in terms of in terms of what we, your book, your book is how fascism works, the politics of us versus them. You've never seen, or I've never seen, in, in my lifetime, the us versus them at work. Like it is now. Where have we seen it in a most pronounced way? Let's talk about the convention and what you saw there, and bring this home. Bring it to to
1: Donald Trump. Right. So not all not all us versus them politics is fascist. Fascism is a particular kind of us versus them politics, based on. You know you uh, we we are we are the hard-working people we are the law-abiding people they are the lazy ones and the criminal ones fascism is based on social Darwinism so we are always the hard-working ones they are the lazy ones uh, fascist politics always says they live in the cities uh, chapter two of mein Kampf is my study and struggle in Vienna when he talks about how Vienna is diseased and there's all these foreigners and it's dirty, unlike the clean, wonderful rural areas. So the cities are diseased, filled with crime and decadence, and and foreigners and immigrants. So we see that we see that. Chapter nine of my book is called Sodom and Gomorrah. This is my book was published two years ago, and it was about it's about this this aspect of fascist politics that the cities are always supposed to be these dirty diseased foreign places where that are lawless and the true americans us the true nation lives in the countryside, it lives in the rural areas. So we see that very much. We saw that very much in the RNC. We're seeing the attack on the cities, the representation of the cities is liberal. We're seeing in Tim Scott's speech, he spoke of the Manhattan elite and the Hollywood moguls. This is right out of the protocols of the elders of Zion, that there's an elite, a global elite. This global elite is trying to destroy the nation. And we need a strong leader to protect us. We see the cult of the leader. The RNC, the Republicans, didn't even have a platform. Their only platform was Donald Trump. We saw dictatorial elements with Trump's, the ruling parties, the the family members being trotted out. And we're seeing we're seeing so so we're seeing so many of in Law and Order. Chapter seven of my book is called Law and Order. The idea is they are criminals. Uh, they are uh, they are lazy, uh, and so uh, and and so you need a strong leader to protect us and to, and to protect your women from them. There's always these links made between immigrants and rape, immigrants and crime, and uh, you know. Uh, uh, so uh, so we have uh, we have this linkage between them, crime, uh, crime and laziness. Us law abidingness. We have a place. We have. We have fascism localizes us. We live outside the cities. QAnon is a remarkable sign of fascism here. QAnon looks a lot like the protocols of the Elders of Zion. There's a deep state, a cabal of somehow they're they're both communists and elite. They're bankers. Hollywood moguls and yet they're communists and, and lurking behind it all. We have the idea that, that Hitler actually talked about with the Jews that they're after our children, that the sex rings, the pedophilia. This is a structure very familiar from fascist propaganda.
0: And and tell me a little bit. And, and by the way, the president must have really loved Chapter Seven of your book. He tweets about it constantly. He the does. the the whole idea of fascism and propaganda versus conspiracy. What's the 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 subtle difference between those things? As you brought up QAnon.
1: So. The goal, the goal of the conspiracy theory is to paint the enemy. So the idea in fascist politics is they are decadent criminal communists who, who want to replace us with the minorities. So the KKK said the Jews are trying to foment a race war. That was Hitler's idea as well. And so the idea is there's, you're either with us or you are the enemy. They are the communists who are seeking to foment a race war. And I am the only one who can protect you from them. So there's no legitimate political opposition. There's no legitimate political party that's in opposition. There's just the traitors and the lead versus the leader.
0: And that's the us versus them. Very quickly, I have to ask this, even though it's going to make the editors crazy. I do want to know, a little bit about what the road out is when fascism hits. I mean, we see it in retrospect, we know that there's not a road map necessarily. But in in the United States here, if Donald Trump loses and his administration, his presidency is an aberration, fine. But these elements exist in America, there's no denying it and they've been given life. Tell me a little bit about that before we go. Uh,
1: It will be a constant struggle. I think fascism is with us to stay, it is always a struggle between democracy and fascism. And the nice thing, the good thing about America is we have the civil rights movement, we have Black Lives Matter now, we have a long history of fighting this. Other countries don't necessarily have that, so we draw on that history.
0: Really fascinating stuff, it's why Jason Stanley is the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, and I'm not, and you're not either only he is and we thank him for his time the book again is is what is how sorry fascism it's how fascism works and it's us versus them the politics of us versus them Jason thanks so much for being with us today how fascism works the politics of us versus them this is the conversation Welcome to the conversation I'm Michael Shore here on TYT network and if you're like me you've probably, looked at some of the reactions to how people are getting their information about COVID. And just shaking your head, you cannot believe some of the quote unquote facts that come out of people's mouths when you listen to what the doctors are really saying. But luckily for you, we have Fadi Quran here. Fadi is uh, is the campaign director for Avaz. He joins us from Memphis, Tennessee. And and he knows a lot more about the role that Facebook plays uh, in, in all of this uh, COVID information we're getting, both dangerous and occasionally helpful, I guess. Fadi, thanks for being on the conversation.
2: Well, thank you for having me
0: so you know I'm not on Facebook uh, and uh, sometimes I'm so relieved and proud that I'm not that very few times I wish that I were because I hear people doing things on Facebook and seeing people that I like to see but I'm not uh, however I do know that uh, that it's in the news for for myriad reasons having to do with politics but there's something sort of in the underbelly of it which is its effect on covid and I, I know it's it's hard to bottom line this but what I'd love to do is talk to you a a little bit about Avaz and, 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 and what you do at Avaz and what the mission of Avaz is, and then to talk a little bit about COVID and, and why you know, why Facebook has played such an important role in how people's perceptions of the disease and the pandemic have been, have been formed. So tell me a little bit about Avaz.
2: Yeah, definitely. And the best way to think about Avaz is we're the world's largest online civic movement. We have over 63 million people who are part of our network. And the way we organize is essentially we ask around the world what are the top issues that we should be campaigning about that we should be fundraising, organizing on. And this has meant that we have campaigned for human rights in the Middle East. We have fought against climate change, we helped organize the Paris Climate March. The challenge came in 2016 when we realized no matter what the issue we cared about was, what the issues we were fighting for were, um, everything came under threat because of disinformation. This kind of toxic, false and misleading information that was polarizing societies, was putting LGBT communities in Africa at risk, it then put the American elections at risk. We, we saw what happened in 2016. We saw the consequences of Cambridge Analytica, Brexit in the EU, the genocide in Myanmar. And our organization and our members realized that if we want to build the world most people everywhere want, we need to fight this problem of disinformation that's disrupting our societies. And that's how we began to just build a large investigative team along the side with campaigners that looked at the social media networks and how they were playing a role in amplifying this bad content. And that's what led us to find and began researching the type of health misinformation that was making people sick and led us to conclude that not only was Facebook affecting people's human rights, putting our democracies in danger. It also was a major threat to public health around the world
0: and that comes not just from the misinformation that people could get on facebook but also from the notion like the 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 covid disease itself that if you get it you you're a carrier right and you take that misinformation and you spread it as if it were in fact covid in a sense to to use that model i, I want to know what some of the sort of highlights one of the the, the under the, the the that are you know, part of this whole Facebook problem when it comes to COVID. What are some of what is some of the misinformation that has been dangerously spewed on Facebook and shared?
2: Yeah, well, the problem is there's so many different pieces. What our report found: number one, and it only looked at a subset of misinformation networks in only five countries, and they alone had reached over 3.8 billion estimated views. Um, on the network. And the content, for example, one piece that went viral in the US, particularly in California and on the West Coast, was this fake claim that the Stanford Medical Center had told people that if you could hold your breath for 10 seconds, that meant that you did not have COVID 19. And that just spread, you know, even in some cases, we found nurses spreading it thinking that it's true because the misinformation was so well designed. The other types of examples are just fake cures. So you find some networks that want to sell people certain supplements. And so they spread misinformation saying that Vaccines don't work. No, no type of social distancing or masks work. What you need to do is buy this supplement. This thing will protect you. Um, you know, one one example was telling people that if they bought a certain supplement that contained vitamin C, vitamin D, and some garlic extract, that that would help keep them healthy um, against this virus. And we're talking this type of content getting tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of views. And then you have another level, um, which is also dangerous, which is the conspiracy theories. So one conspiracy theory claims that Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci are working together to manufacture fear around this disease because they want to they're working with big pharma to sell vaccines or because they you know bill gates want to it wants to implant chips in people's bodies and we we sometimes think that this misinformation you know it's only the kind of quacks and ignorant people who believe it but the truth is that today in the us Polls show that 50% of Americans say that they either would not vaccinate themselves, or are unsure whether they would vaccinate or not if there was a COVID-19 vaccine. And this means that this misinformation and people believing it is putting all of us at risk.
0: Yeah, the overestimating people is something I learned not to do. There used to be a late night on television. They used to have these psychics that would come on with nine hundred lines, and and you you'd pay like four ninety nine a minute to have your psychic reading read. And I just couldn't believe people would do it. And it turns out they made hundreds of millions of dollars doing it. So it doesn't surprise me at all. What is um, but not just what is Avaz doing, but what is the recourse? Newspapers have an ombudsman, many of them do. They certainly have editors there that will make corrections and, and apologize and set the record straight, the, the good ones. What happens at Facebook though? That that doesn't exist there, and what should they be doing that they're not? And what's better than it was before maybe?
2: That's That's the question, and it really is terrifying. To know that Facebook has a set of solutions that could protect lives, and they're not implementing them. The first thing that Facebook should do is that once Facebook detects that there's a piece of misinformation that has gone viral, let's say you know it's it's um, I don't know, let's say it's a Russian the, the Russian government seeking to spread misinformation that's telling people not to get vaccinated at some point, and Facebook detects that. Facebook should. Provide every user on the platform who's been targeted with that misinformation with a correction saying, you know, the Associated Press or the CDC have found that this is false news. Beware. Facebook does not correct the record on that front. And that's the first step that they should be taking. It's simple be transparent with your users, tell them when they see something that is dangerous to them. The second step that Facebook can do is. For example, in our report, we identified these networks and their reach is four times. The the reach that they get from Facebook to their websites is four times the reach that official health websites such as the CDC or the World Health Organization get when we did the comparison. What Facebook could do instead of allowing its algorithm to amplify these bad misinformation networks is Facebook can downgrade a systematic misinformation sharers. So that instead of their content appearing at the top of your newsfeed, it appears at the bottom or doesn't appear at all. Those two steps alone could decrease potentially in our calculations, the amount of people who see misinformation and believe it by 80 to 90%. If Facebook just took those two steps. And it's it's a real, I would say, disgrace, honestly, that Facebook is not moving in that direction.
0: Why would they not? I mean, I I know probably you know I I would say there's you have no idea why they wouldn't right. But what what how does it behoove them to not deal with this these problems?
2: This is this is a question I think that needs to be asked to Mark Zuckerberg directly. And I have to say, I've spoken with a lot of people at Facebook that are working on this issue that have smart solutions and that really care about protecting and informing their users. I don't want to paint an image that everyone at Facebook is bad, there are a lot of good people. But the decision is at the level of the executives. And it's potentially either that Facebook just does not want to show how much misinformation is on the platform. And if you provide the correction every time a user sees misinformation, they're going to begin seeing just how problematic their newsfeed is. The other reason may just be that there's political pressure, right? Because a lot of the disinformation and misinformation is done by political actors. And Facebook may just not be in, you know they may not want to anger some of those political actors that are spreading this content. And so don't go all the way. In implementing these solutions. And, and Fatty,
0: when you are working with Facebook and talking to Facebook, and, and again, it is the executives. Is there anything, like what's next for you? What's next for the community organizers and the people that are trying to get this out there? If you're not making a headway with, with Mark Zuckerberg and the executive team at Facebook, is there another avenue into making
2: this happen? Yes, the, the first and key step is that we need to organized to push for regulation. Whether it's in Europe or in the US and Congress, Facebook and other social media platforms need to be regulated. And that's what we're doing, we're speaking, we're developing legislation, we're speaking with key decision makers to put regulation that forces Facebook to apply those solutions such as correct the record and detox the algorithm. The second step is releasing these reports and then organizing doctors. We have now thousands of doctors that are part of this movement demanding that Facebook take action. We have survivors of health misinformation and other forms of disinformation, people from the Rohingya community in Myanmar to the Sandy Hook families in the US that are coming together to just say Facebook, you need to fix this and putting pressure directly at the company and pushing their employees to also push the executive level to step back and apply solutions that can protect people's lives.
0: Amazing. An amazing thing about global civic activism is you can have a group like the Rohingya and the the Sandy Hook families and bring them together and and try and and create a change. Fadi Karan is is the campaign director at Avaz. and and this information is so important for TYT members and, and and viewers to hear because this is exactly what is going wrong on on social media. And so many of us spend a lot of time on social media. Though again, I'm not. on Facebook. Fatty Karan from Memphis Tennessee. thank you so much for for being with us and for educating our viewers. This is the conversation.